0: This is Doug Hastings, Vice President of Moody Radio, and we're thankful for support from our listeners and businesses like United Faith Mortgage. Mortgage commercials are rarely exciting. So to make it slightly more interesting, here are my nieces to do it for me.
1: So interest rates continue to drop like my sister's baby teeth. Come on, Uncle Ryan had to
0: say the same thing last year. That's true. Last year, it was rates are boring talk historically low. And now this year, there's somehow even more boring talk historically lower than the previous boring talk historically low. Sounds boring. But for so many listeners who just haven't wanted to deal with it, refinancing right now could save you massive amounts of Lego sets. Rates have gotten that low. Some borrowers could potentially save hundreds monthly and tens and tens of thousands over the life of a loan. And if you didn't put 20% down before, some could even stop having to pay PMI. Give Uncle Brian a shot. We are United Faith Mortgage.
1: United Faith Mortgage is a DBA of United Mortgage Corp., 25 Melville Park Road, Melville, New York. Licensed Mortgage Banker. For all licensing information, go to nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Corporate NMLS number 1330, Equal Housing Lender. Not licensed in Alaska, Hawaii, Georgia, Massachusetts, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Utah.
0: You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you a five-part series of messages William McRae presented, answering the question, Who is God? at Moody Keswick Bible Conference, 1980. Dr. William McRae was a teacher, pastor, seminary professor, and president of what is now known as Tyndale University and Theological Seminary. Now, here is William McRae on Today in the Word radio.
1: A.W. Tozer began his uh, most significant book that has uh, affected my life very significantly. His book entitled The Knowledge of the Holy. And when he began that book, he made that statement, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And I think he's right on. There is nothing that is more basic to your Christian faith than what you think about God. Is Jesus Christ God come in the flesh, or is Jesus Christ merely a man? Must a person repent of their sin and uh, be born again of the Spirit of God through a personal faith in Jesus Christ to be a Christian? Or must one just simply try to follow the teachings of Jesus? When one has been born again into the family of God, are they saved and are they saved forever or uh, is there the possibility that they might lose out in the end? After one dies, is there life after death? Is there really a heaven to win and a, and a hell to shun? And take the Bible in our hands, for example. Um, is it really the word of God? Or is it simply a human book? How can you really trust a, a word that has come from fallen people like Moses and David and Paul? How can you really trust that as the word of God? Do we have all of the inspired books collected in this 66? Or do we have one or two that sneaked in that shouldn't be in there? How can we trust the translations when when we don't have the Greek and the Hebrew? Every question like that in its answer reflects our concept of God. What you believe about God will determine how you will answer every one of those questions and a hundred thousand others just like them. What you believe about God really is the most important thing about you. It's basic to your Christian faith. More than that, it's basic to your Christian living. How you live your life really is a reflection of what you think about God. Show me a woman who worries. Who really is a worrier. And I'll show you a woman who has a God who isn't in control. A God who doesn't know what's happening. A God who is weak. A God who is unaware. A God who has lost control. Show me a businessman who works and works and works and works. But prays very little. And I'll show you a man who has a God who is unavailable or who's uninvolved or who's unapproachable. Show me a teenager who uh, is starting to make plans for life. But in making those plans ignores the counsel and the advice that God gives in his word. And I'll show you a teenager who thinks that God is a fool. And who God doesn't really, uh, and, and have a, has a God who doesn't really know and isn't very wise at all. Show me a man or a woman who plays fast and loose with sin, and I'll show you a person who has a God who isn't holy, or a God who isn't serious when he talks about sin, or a God who can be outsmarted, a God who doesn't really know. Show me a person who has problems with self image. And uh, with a a perception of themselves that is constantly destroying them. And I'll show you a person who has a God who makes junk. A God who makes people who really aren't very important, who, who really aren't people of worth. You see, what I'm saying is, what you believe about God is very important, friends. It's basic to your Christian faith and its basic to your Christian life. Matter of fact, someone has said, every error in Christian doctrine and every failure to live the Christian ethics can ultimately be traced back to a distorted or a perverted concept of God. What we want to do this morning and during our morning sessions together is uh, try to focus in upon a biblical concept of God. And we're going to to address what uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon suggested was the uh, greatest pursuit that the human mind could ever pursue, and that is a study of God. Uh, Perception of the character of God. J.I. Packer, not too long ago, wrote a book entitled Knowing God. And in that book, he identifies four characteristics of men and women who know God. And it's because those kinds of characteristics are what I would like to be characteristics of my life, that I want to pursue the knowledge of God. How about you? He says, for example, men and women who know God have great boldness for God. They're people who have great contentment in God. Thirdly, he says, there are people who have great energy for God. And then finally, he says, there are men and women who have great thoughts about God. And frankly, friend, that's the kind of person I'd like to be more and more. And if that's where you are in your Christian experience, then welcome to the pursuit of the week. What we want to do by God's grace is come to know God better this week than we knew him last week. We want to come to appreciate him as the God who he really is and just try to appreciate the greatness of God and the character of God and the nature of God so that we'll be men and women with boldness and with contentment and with energy and great thoughts about God. So come along, join me as we come back into the scriptures and as we open up the word of God, and as we take a look at the God of the Bible, he may be radically different than the God in your mind this morning. Let me ask you, when you think about God, what comes into your mind? Tozer says it's the most important thing about you. What's the very first thing that comes into your mind when you think about God? Well, I'm going to make a recommendation to you this morning, just in case there are a half a dozen things that are competing for that first entrance into your mind. What comes into our mind first could just be the number one most important thing about us. What should it be? Let me invite you to turn to the book of Daniel, please, for my recommendation, and I hope that you will agree. We're going to look at Daniel chapter 4 this morning as our basic text, Daniel chapter 4, and we're going to listen to the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. He comes to know God, and this is his first statement about the God that he has come to know. And my suggestion is that it ought to be our first statement about the God we have come to know. It ought to be the first thing that comes into our mind when we think about God. Let me put it in its setting for you. Daniel chapter 1, Nebuchadnezzar is the greatest ruling monarch on the face of the earth. He is the king of Babylon, the number one world power. Under his leadership, the Babylonian army has invaded Israel, it has taken some captives, and Daniel is taken back into the land of Babylon as one of the captives. Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and in that dream he sees a tree that uh, is growing up and all of the birds and animals of the kingdom have come to that tree and they found protection and they found food in it. And then all of a sudden, an angelic being comes down, and that tree is cut down. The root is preserved. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar is perplexed. What does it mean? And after all the wise men who are the worshipers of the gods of Babylon have tried in vain to give an interpretation, Daniel, the servant of God, steps into his presence. And Daniel interprets the dream. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the tree. And you have grown big. You are the most powerful man on the face of this earth. You're the head of this world kingdom. But unless you bow down and repent before the God of Israel, you are going to be cut down. And Nebuchadnezzar, with all of his arrogance, refuses to repent and refuses to bow down. And then, in verse 28, we read, All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. And he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. Now notice his testimony. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or no one can say to him, What hast thou done? What a marvelous testimony. When Nebuchadnezzar's reason returned to his mind in response to his repentance, Nebuchadnezzar bears witness to the fact That the Most High, that Jehovah, Yahweh, that the God of Israel is God. And that, friend, it seems to me, is the very first thing that ought to come into our minds when we think about God. Now that seems extremely trivial, doesn't it? What I'm recommending, what I'm proposing... Is that the very first thing that comes into our mind when we think about God? Is that He's God. He's God. He's God. He's not a puppet with us pulling the strings, He's not a weakling. He's God. Voltaire, the French skeptic in the 16th century said, Christians believe that God made man in his image. Now man has returned the favor and they have made God in their image. And that is a scathing denunciation of many of us. What we have really done is we have created a God in our image. He's a God like us. He's a little bigger than us. He's a little better than us, but he's not god and that's what nebuchadnezzar acknowledges he'd lived in a land with gods all around him he had worshiped scores and scores of gods but now through this experience he came to the point of saying now i've met god the most high israel's god daniel's god yahweh he's god now notice exactly what he says about this god At the end of verse 34, he bears testimony to his eternal self-existence. He says he's a God who lives forever. And that could not be said of the gods of Babylon. The second thing he does is he bears witness to his everlasting dominion. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. That was not true of the gods of Babylon. Those gods came and went. They created new ones and old ones passed away. He then, in verse 35, bears witness to the nothingness of man in comparison with its God. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. I mean, this God isn't just a superman. This God is something that's entirely different than man. Compared with him, men are nothing. Then he bears witness to the power of God. He does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. His will is done. And then he goes on and talks about the irresistibility of God. No one can ward off his hand. When God moves his hand this way, nobody stops God's hand. When God moves his hand to do this, no one resists God's hand. God's hand is irresistible. No one can ward off his hand. And then finally, he says this God is unimpeachable. Who can ever question him? Who can ever challenge him? Who can ever call him to an account? Who can ever say to him, what have you done? Why did you do that? Who are you to ever pull that off? You see, what what Nebuchadnezzar has discovered in, in an experience of his life is that in comparison with all of the other gods that he'd ever heard about, Yahweh, the Most High, was a god who was God. And that's the most important thing that you and I can ever learn about God. It's that he is God. Now, that's a very common way of speaking of one of the most most perplexing and one of the most profound perceptions when it comes to God. If we're reading of it in our theological textbooks or in our commentaries, we refer to it as the sovereignty of God. And friend, that's what Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges. The sovereignty of God by definition is simply acknowledging that God is God. That is the definition of God's sovereignty. To say that God is sovereign is to say that God is God. Now what does that mean? Well, let me try two or three things on you for size. The first thing it means, friend, is that God has the right to do whatever he wishes to do. Now, all of a sudden, I begin to feel the squeeze. But if God is God, he has the right to do whatever he wishes to do. If God is sovereign, if God is God... He is under no rule or authority outside his own personality or character. He's not under your rule. He's not under my rule. He's not under under any constitutional rule. He's under no authority, no rule other than himself and his own character. If God is sovereign, he is under no obligation to you and me. He doesn't have to explain what he does. He doesn't have to give an account for what he does. He doesn't have to answer to us ever. He's God. Now that's what it means when we speak of the sovereignty of God or when we speak of the Godhood of God. We are saying that he has the right to do whatever he wills. He's under no rule or authority outside himself. He has no obligation to explain to us ever anything that he does. He's God. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar discovers. He's a God who is God. He's a God who is sovereign. Now, you need to understand, of course, that this is a a perception of God that's contained all through our Bible. It's not one that many of us have, and it's one that many of us resist and argue with. But, But this is the God of the Bible. Let me see if I can demonstrate that. Just listen as I read some verses. For example, after Job has had his encounter with God, chapter 38 and 39 and 40 and 41, where God, where God displays the kind of God he really is. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 42, Job answered the Lord and he said, I know that thou canst do all things and that no purpose of thine can be thwarted. What a marvelous testimony to the Godhood of God. Psalm 22 verse 28. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. He rules over the United States of America. He rules over the dominion of Canada. He rules over Cuba. He rules over the nations. Psalm 115, verse 3. But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. You believe that? Friend, that is really mind-boggling, isn't it? John read to us that Psalm 115. When the God of Israel is compared with all of the other gods of the world. And the God of Israel, he's God, says the psalmist. He does whatever he pleases. Proverbs 16, verse 9. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. See, what that is saying is that I can plan, and I do all of my planning and designing, but what happens is determined by God. He is absolutely sovereign. He rules Isaiah 14 27 for the Lord of hosts has planned and who can frustrate it as for his stretched out hand who can turn it back see what Isaiah is saying is that when God decides that he's going to do something it's done no one thwarts the hand of God no one can resist the hand of God he's irresistible Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10. Remember the former things long past, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure a marvelous testimony to the sovereignty of God. You say, Bill, how about a New Testament verse? Would you like a couple of New Testament ones? How about Ephesians 1 verse 11? It says that he works all things after the counsel of his will. What about that marvelous benediction that comes from Paul in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6 verse 15? He says, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's the testimony of the New Testament and the Old Testament, friend, to your God and to my God. And the uniform testimony is that he's God, that he's God, that he is sovereign. That he occupies the position of being number one in this universe. He is absolutely supreme. He does his will. His will cannot ultimately be thwarted. He's under no obligation to us or to any other force outside himself. He is absolutely supreme. He's number one in this universe. He's a God who is God. Now, if that's the definition... And if this is how it's declared on so many different occasions through the scripture, the third thing that I want to do briefly for you this morning is to show you how the sovereignty of God is demonstrated. And it's demonstrated in a variety of different arenas. You see the sovereignty of God in creation. He could have created a world or he could not have created a world. He could have created one world or he could have created a hundred worlds. He could have created a small world. He could have created a large world. He made the decisions. And he, in and of himself, called it into being. In the creation of the world, the Godhood of God is demonstrated. His sovereignty is demonstrated in uh, his rule over inanimate matter. Things like this. He said, let there be light. There was light. He saw Noah's generation, and he determined to flood the earth with water, and he flooded the earth with water. He came upon Egypt in the days of Moses. And he buried the land with black darkness. Those three Hebrews were thrown into the furnace that was heated up seven times its normal heat. And after a period of time, those three men were brought out. They didn't even smell of smoke. When the Son of God was born in Bethlehem, A star directed the Magi from the east to Jerusalem, to Bethlehem, and to the house. He is the sovereign Lord of inanimate matter. He stands up in the bow of the ship when the Sea of Galilee is threatening to engulf the ship and the lives of all of his disciples. And he turns to the wind and he says, Be muzzled! He turns to the seas, and he says, hush! And the winds stop, and the sea quiets down, and the disciples turn and look to each other, and they say, what manner of man is this? That's God who demonstrates his rule, his sovereign rule. Over all of inanimate matter. He's in control of the winds. He's in control of the weather. He's in control of the waves. He's in control of animate matter. It does his bidding. More than that, the Bible says that he's sovereign ruler over over irrational creatures. Over the animals of the world. He causes the animals to pass by Adam. As Adam is looking for for a mate. None is found suitable. He causes the animals to line up in order and to enter Noah's ark. When Moses lifts his rod, lice, frogs, animals infest the land of Egypt. He's sovereign over the animals of this world. Jonah is cast overboard and a fish prepared by God is there at that very moment to swallow Jonah. Jonah. Daniel is cast into the lion's dens, and God closes the mouths of the lions. Those blasphemers who blaspheme the God of Elisha are consumed as the she-bears come out of the woods and devour them. The Lord sits on the back of a colt upon whose back no man has ever sat, and that unbroken animal quietly submits to the authority of its creator and maker. They're asking Jesus if he pays the temple tax. He sends Peter down to the dock. Peter throws his line in. He catches a fish. There's a coin in the mouth of the fish. What I'm saying is that he is the ruler. He is the sovereign over all of the irrational creatures on the face of this earth. The animals do his bidding. He's God. He is sovereign over all of the angelic beings. Peter is in prison And God sends angels in Acts chapter 12 to deliver Peter from prison. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, an evil spirit from the Lord is sent to terrorize King Saul. In Job chapters 1 and 2, Satan himself stands in the presence of God and he is given permission by God as to how far he can go with Job's life. How far he can go with Job's family. And Satan is submissive to the ultimate rule of God. See, what the Bible is saying is that that he is sovereign over all of the angelic spiritual forces in this world. But friend, the most fascinating thing is that according to Daniel chapter 4, he is sovereign over you and me as well. He is sovereign over men. He is sovereign over women. He is sovereign in our lives as well. And that's the uniform testimony of Scripture. Just look at the story of what's happened in Nebuchadnezzar's life and you see the hand of God working and you see the purposes of God ultimately being achieved. Now, if you know your Bible well enough, let me take you for a step or two through some of the other stories in the Bible. What about Joseph's life? You remember it? What a marvelous testimony that is to the sovereign rule of God, the providences of God in the life of Joseph. And you come to the Apostle Paul's life, and you see God moving sovereignly and wisely in the rule and control of Saul of Tarsus so that he ultimately becomes the Apostle Paul. Remember the story of Corey ten Boom. A clerical error. Not in your life. It was the sovereign providences of God that delivered her from the death camp and brought her into the free world. My wife's reading a book right now by Charles Colson, and I was thinking about it as we were talking over these last couple of days about this book. The providence, the sovereign rule of God in the life of Charles Coulson, so that he brought him through what he has brought him through and made him what he is so that he can be what he is today to evangelicalism in America. See, what the Bible clearly teaches, friend, is that God is sovereign in your life. God is sovereign in my life. It's one thing to make his sovereign rule apply to creation and then talk about inanimate matter and irrational creatures and angelic beings. But when we bring it down to our lives, that's where the crunch is. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And what ought to come into your mind first when you think about God is that God is God. That's who he is. He's God. He is absolutely sovereign. He rules as number one in this universe, and he is God in your life. He is sovereign over all of the affairs of your life. He's a God who is God. Now, what are the practical implications of that? If that's what the Bible teaches, and you will have to conclude if it is. That's my understanding of the Bible. That's how I see the scriptures. I understand that God is sovereign. I clearly understand that that does not eliminate human responsibility. And I know that human responsibility is always in tension with the sovereignty of God. But I am not going to sacrifice the sovereignty of God in order to extol the responsibility of man. That is a Christian form of humanism. God is God. God is sovereign. God is ruler, and that is the clear testimony of Scripture. What are the practical implications of that? How does that affect life? Well, if you look carefully at Nebuchadnezzar's life, I think you'll find four. The first thing that it does, obviously, is it humbled a very arrogant man. You see, that was the problem with Nebuchadnezzar. He was proud, he was arrogant. Is not this the great Babylon which I myself have built? And I built it for my glory and to display my majesty? For seven years he lives like an animal. Grazing in the fields outside the city. And at the end of that time he repents. His reason returns to him. And he lifts his eyes to heaven, and he says, you're God, not me. One of the great problems that we have in evangelicalism in North America, Canada, and the United States is the dethroning of God and the enthroning of man. That's what we call humanism humanism is where god is taken out of the center of the universe he's taken out of the center of life he's taken out of the center of our being and he is replaced by man one of the great impacts of acknowledging that god is god is that it has a powerful way of affecting the kind of arrogance and pride that has inundated all of us in our thinking as a result of living in such a humanistic environment. To have a God who is God cultivates a deep and genuine humility. Remember what happened when Job saw God? I abhor myself. I repent in dust and ashes, he said. Remember what happened when Isaiah saw God? Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Remember what happened when John saw God? He falls down prostrate on the ground with his face in the dust before God. Remember what happened when Peter saw God? Depart from me, I'm a wicked man, he said. One of the things that having a God who is God really does in our lives is it helps us recognize our humanity, that we are mere men, we are mere women. And in comparison with him, we're nothing. Do you hear it? In comparison with him, we're nothing. Show me a man or woman that is arrogant and proud and self-sufficient, and I will show you a man or woman who has not met God as God. That's one of the things that does, is it humbled you before him. I'm nothing compared with you. The second thing, and if you still have your Bible open, notice there are three things that are mentioned now in that context in verse 34. He said, when my reason returned me, he said, I blessed the most high and praised and honored him. Let me just take a moment to, do to talk about those three things. Because after humility is cultivated in our lives, then these are the three things that flow out of it. This is the practical effect of, of acknowledging the sovereignty of God in our lives. He says, I blessed the Most High. And in the context of the Old and New Testament, that simply means I gave thanks to Him. Uh, to, to bless God is to give thanks to God. One of the things that the sovereignty of God does in the life of a believer is that um, it cultivates within him a capacity for being genuinely thankful to God in his life. Um, Winters in Canada are cold. You people down here don't know that, but some of us are here to bear witness to it. And early in December, I was traveling from one city to another city. I had spoken on Saturday night at this particular city, and I had a drive of about 100 miles to the second city where I was preaching on Sunday morning. And I left this first city at about 9.30 Saturday night and got out on one of our highways and was traveling across that highway to the second city, and my car started to give me trouble. And it was a very wintry night. There was snow and desperately cold. And uh, for two and a half hours, I played with the car and tried to get it going, and uh, thought I had it going. It started out on the highway, and then it died right out on the highway. And finally, had to find a place where I could phone to one of my friends in in this town, the that, city that I was going to. And at about one thirty in the morning, he arrived to where I was and picked me up and and took me there so I could preach on Sunday morning. When he arrived, he was a good friend of mine. When he arrived. The very first words he said to me were these. Well, Bill, do you still believe God is sovereign? See, that's what this kind of thing does. Do you still believe God is sovereign? When you see that God is sovereign and God is ruling and he's doing his will, in the midst of those kinds of circumstances, you bless God. We expected my father-in-law to be here with us this week. He and my mother-in-law were uh, used to work here in the kitchen 15 years ago. My mother-in-law went home to heaven uh, 10 years ago, and uh, a week ago Sunday my father-in-law went home to heaven. Very suddenly, during a Sunday morning church service, he had been at the Lord's Supper, he had given thanks for the cup, and sat down, and the next service had just begun. They they started singing a hymn, and after they sang it, he sat down and put his head over and went to sleep into heaven. What a marvelous way to go to heaven. One of the things that the sovereignty of God does is it enables you to look at those kinds of circumstances and bless God. He is fulfilling his purposes. He is doing his will. He is in sovereign rule and control. And that's one of the benefits. That's one of the byproducts. That's one of the evidences of this kind of thing in a person's life. There's the blessing of God. And that's that's what Nebuchadnezzar does. What's he got to bless God for? Seven years like a wild, deranged animal in the fields, he blessed God because that brought him to his senses. It humbled him before God. It opened his eyes to God, and he blessed God. Third thing he does, it says, is that he praised God. Now, the difference between blessing and praising is blessing is the response of the human heart to the actions of God in our life. Praising is the response of the human heart to the character of God. And so when he says he praised God, he is saying that I started to reflect upon the nature of God and the character of God and the attributes of God. And I responded to those by praising him for the kind of God that he is. One of the things that that the sovereignty of God does in a believer's life is that it puts a whole new dimension into singing um, How Great Thou Art. What a great hymn that is. Sometimes we sing it without any gusto, without any meaning, without any significance. When we believe that our God is God, What a thrilling thing it is to join our hearts and our voices together and to lift those hearts and voices and to praise him. He's God. To praise him for all of the kinds of characteristics that make him the kind of God that he is. The final thing that it says is that he honored him. And I suspect that that's referring now to the kind of life that Nebuchadnezzar is going to live. To honor God is to respect him. Or... In biblical language, it's to fear him. And Nebuchadnezzar has never lived his life in the fear of God until now. But now he is going to begin to fear God. He's going to honor God. He's going to reverence God. He's going to respect God. Why? Because God is God. And that's what it does in a believer's life. Let me tie it together for you. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What should come into our mind first? The most obvious. He's God. That's what should come into our mind. It's not that he's a big brother, it's not that he's a close friend, it's not that he does things like the uh, genie of Aladdin's lamp, it's not that he's a puppet that I manipulate and control, he's God. And when that perception comes into our mind first when we think about God, it will cultivate genuine humility before him. It will prompt and encourage real thanksgiving in the circumstances and vicissitudes of life. It will engender praise and devotion to him as we worship him for the kind of God that he is. And it will instill into our life a reverence, a respect, a fear, an honor for him, because he's God. What comes into your mind when you think about God is going to shape the rest of your life. Let's think of him as God, because that's who he really is. Let's bow in prayer, shall we? Now, Father, this morning we pray that as we open our minds and our hearts to thee, that you will make yourself known to us. We know, Lord, that you are not found out by searching after you, that you are found out by making yourself known to us. And so we ask in the word of God, as we've studied it this morning, you will make yourself known to us, and there will be a whole new fresh appreciation of the Godhood of our God, and that we will live our lives in the light of that graciously grant the petition and the desire of our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and one of a five-part series of messages by William McRae answering the question, Who is God? at Moody Keswick Bible Conference 1980. Dr. William McRae was a teacher, pastor, seminary professor, and president of what is now known as Tyndale University and Theological Seminary. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.